Hello, my name is Olukayodi Adisonya, host and creator of the History of Yoruba Land podcast. You may recall the events of episode 8, season 3 of the History of Africa podcast, in which the brash Ashanti nobleman, Apia Odonkwa, leads the empire to its doom at the legendary battle of Atakpame and creates the political climate which gave rise to the Kwadwan revolution. You may also remember one of the chief factions, pivotal to the outcome of these events, the Oyo Empire, without whose support the forces of Achem and Dahomey would surely have been crushed by the mighty Ashanti war machine. For those of you who want to learn more about this truly fascinating Yoruba civilization, but lack the time or expertise to search for themselves, then the History of Yoruba Land podcast might be the place for you. Tune into your platform of choice this Sunday to catch the latest episode of the show, which will serve as an introduction to the Oyo and Yoruba people, their culture, history, and role in the modern world. I hope to see you there this week, and hopefully many more weeks to come. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we learned about the political fallout that happened in the aftermath of the Third Anglo-Ashanti War. Many of the people who had been long integrated into the Ashanti political fold tried to leave the empire. The Adansi people of the southwest successfully departed from Ashanti influence. Meanwhile, the king of Juaben, the second most important city in the Ashanti empire, tried to declare his own independence from the rule of Kumasi, only to be crushed and defeated in a hard-fought, grisly reconquest led by Otto Beaufort. The war was devastating, prompting thousands of refugees to flee from Juaben, and resulted in the city's near total destruction. So, where do we go from here? In this episode, the new Ashantehene, Mensa Bonso, will continue to try and continue to fail to reverse the Ashanti Empire's downwards trajectory. Season 3, Episode 27 Reformers and Reactionaries The Rise and Fall of the God's Creativity Cult. Despite how bad everything had gotten, the Ashanti Empire could celebrate a victory in 1875. The threat of Draban secession had been narrowly averted. Most of the people who fought against the Ashanti government in the war had been exiled from Ashantiman. A small faction, including the Hene Jassi, tried briefly to keep up the fight, ordering guerrilla raids on Ashanti settlements near the Achiman border, as it became increasingly clear in the following months that a recapture of Joaben was unlikely. Even Jassi himself was forced to admit defeat, and continued to live a quiet life as the leader of the Ashantis in Achiman, a people who would henceforth be known as the New Joaben. Mensa Bonso now firmly controls Old Joaben, its burnt-out remains, at least. This was not the end of the crises of Mensabonso's rule, far from it. It did, at least for a while though, put a pin in it. The empire had contracted quite a bit in both power and territory, but it had returned to a state of relative stability. So, with things now under control, sort of, the new question on Mensabonso's desk was one of how to put the pieces back together. Yes, the bleeding had been stopped for now, but the terminal problems facing the Ashanti Empire necessitated much more drastic measures or else the state would continue to linger on its deathbed. So, what were the problems that Mensabonso faced? Well, what weren't the problems he faced? 
First and most importantly, the Empire's finances were in abysmal shape. The problem of financing for the Ashanti state had been a severe problem since, well, really ever since the death of Kwakojoa. The main fundraising methods for the Empire had been the state monopoly on gold, expensive road tariffs, and in the days of Kwakojoa, enormous taxes on inheritance. In 1875, one of these revenue sources was entirely non-existent. Mensa Bonso's predecessor had abolished the estate tax, so no money there. The other two, road duties and the gold monopoly, were producing fractions of the wealth they once had. Remember, the Adansi region, featuring the most productive gold mines in the empire, had just acceded, taking the vast majority of gold production with them. Road duties, on the other hand, well, those had primarily come through the lucrative colonut trade, a trade that passed largely through where else but Juaben. So, the devastating war and almost complete leveling of the city had kind of put a dent in that. Finances are the blood of the state. Without proper financing, all of the other organs of the state, like military, policing, bureaucracy, and criminal justice, simply can't function. So if Mensa Bonso wanted to get the Ashanti Empire back on the right track, fixing its finances was the first place to start. When it came to fixing Ashantiman's finances, Mensa Bonso did not have to face this task alone. One man would play an enormous role in advising the king's decisions, at least during his early reign. This was the king's uncle, Owosu Ansa, or as he was better known in English, John Ansa. So Ansa has been a figure who hasn't come up on the show yet. He's been just outside of the podcast frame of reference, but he's always been present on the very periphery of our perspective. An older draft of this episode's script had me go into great detail about his fascinating life story, but it ended up just being too long and interesting. So I decided that that story is a better fit for a premium episode. So if you want to learn more about the fascinating life of John Owosu Ansa, you can access that episode and the dozens of other premium episodes we've made by supporting the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. So to give the short of it, Ansa was born in 1823. He and his brother were sent to Britain at the age of eight on the orders of Ashantahene Oseya Koto. In the UK, they received an education in British customs and language, and also converted to Christianity. They returned to Cape Coast five years later and worked for a while as ministers at a Methodist missionary station, before eventually turning their eyes to a new career, serving as ambassadors between the Ashanti and British empires. They served quietly, but well in this role by all accounts. His brother eventually died in 1851, but even then, Ansa kept up his work as an ambassador. And he worked. At one point, he basically single-handedly prevented war between the British and Ashanti over the prop end. And then when war did break out almost a decade later, he served as one of the chief negotiators of the agreement that ended the Second Anglo-Ashanti War. In the following years, he traveled back and forth between Cape Coast and Komasi with regularity, but everything changed in 1873. There, on one of his trips to Komasi, he sat in on several meetings of the Ashanti Manchiamu, particularly those that debated whether the Ashanti would go to war with the British. While there, he acted as one of the most prominent members of the pro-peace faction in the lead-up to the Third Anglo-Ashanti War, becoming a close ally of Queen Mother Afwa Kobi in the process. After his efforts to convince the Ashanti Manchiamu to pursue peace failed, the Ashanti government placed Ansa under house arrest, fearing that if he returned to Cape Coast that he would spill confidential information about Ashanti war plans and supplies to the British. After several weeks under this house arrest, Ansa managed to convince Cockery that he was actually not a British spy, and that he simply had a deep passion for preserving peace between his two homelands. Cockery was convinced by this argument, and let him free. 
He then traveled to Cape Coast to try to convince the British to begin de-escalating the rising conflict. However, Ansa's long stay in Komasi, despite it being against his will, convinced many people within the British Gold Coast that he was an Ashanti spy. The majority of the British diplomats, including some longtime co-workers of Ansa, were convinced that they could no longer trust him, and refused to take any of his attempts at mediation seriously. His stay in Cape Coast came tumbling down when, one day, a mob of Fanti vigilantes took matters into their own hands. They attacked Ansa's home in Cape Coast, killing his wife and children in the process. Ansa only survived because he happened to be out at the time. Terrified for his life and angry at the perceived British apathy in the aftermath of the attack, he returned to Komasi, this time to serve as an unofficial representative of the Ashanti government. During the second stay, he achieved a position of close confidant and advisor to the Ashantahene Kofi Kakari, and, after the former's impeachment, Mensa Bonso as well. Most notably, he played a pretty important role behind the scenes in stymieing British attempts to support the Hene during his recent war against Mensa Bonso. Despite not holding any official government title, this success truly earned him the trust of the Ashanti royal family. While Ansa only possessed substantial experience in diplomacy, he would prove to be quite an influential figure in other fields of governance as well. First and foremost, Ansa sought to radically reform the Ashanti law code. You see, during his time in Britain and Fantemon, Ansa had become quite influenced by contemporary progressive ideas, both as espoused by British liberals and by the comprador leaders of the Fanti Confederacy. Now, when I say the word liberal, I don't necessarily mean it in the sense that we think of modern-day liberalism and conservatism, but rather liberal in the historical sense. The philosophical school of thought that favored such concepts as the rule of law, individual rights, property rights, and free trade. In the context of this philosophy, Ansa was a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, and he found a surprisingly sympathetic ear to his ideas in Mensa Bonso. You see, many of the things that may have bothered you about the culture of 19th century Ashantiman while listening to the show also bothered Ansa a lot. The high prevalence of execution as criminal punishment, the rampant militarism, oppression of the lower classes, and most of all, the whole slavery thing. Ansa openly criticized these institutions and called for either reform or abolition. Now, the Ashantahene was much more pragmatic than his advisor. While Ansa was willing to call for the complete abandonment of the death penalty, Mensa Bonso was not ready to take such a radical step. However, Mensa Bonso did clearly hold at least some sympathy for the idea, as he chose to significantly revise the Ashanti law code. His reforms consistently fell a few steps short of his advisor's radical proposals, but still several steps forward from the status quo. Under the new law code, homicide was designated as the only crime worthy of the death penalty, and military conscription was eased up. However, perhaps the most radical decision he made was the way that Mensa Bonso decided to handle the question of debt penage. Debt penage, or the practice of putting people into a temporary form of unfree labor in exchange for the forgiveness of personal debts, was a practice that had existed long before the Ashanti Empire and was in no way unique to the region, but formed the backbone of the Ashanti labor economy. The practice had been common throughout Ashanti history, until it was legislated to the brink of extinction by Kwako Joa in the 1840s through a sweeping program of peasant debt relief. However, during the reign of Kofi Kakari, estate tax cuts resulted in severe cuts to this debt relief program, and a resurgence of the practice of peon labor to pay off debts. With Mensa Bonso finally in a position to implement his agenda, he revitalized the debt relief program. His final major reform was also one egged on by Ansa. At his advisor's insistence, Mensa Bonso began an attack on the old system of apprenticeship education that had dominated the empire since its founding. 
While, for now, apprenticeship experience would still be sufficient to land you titles in civil service or trade, the Ashantahane agreed that future generations would have to pass through a system of Western-style formalized schools. This new educational system was placed under the administration of Ansa himself, who immediately took to recruiting European missionaries and other educated people to staff his new school system. This reform plan was incredibly ambitious and, sadly, doomed to fail. The problem was, of course, funding. This new educational system and the revived debt relief program were incredibly expensive undertakings for a state in such a financial wreck. Now, Mensabonso did have a familiar plan on how to pay for these programs. Estate taxes. Just like under Kwakojoa, the Ashantahane would simply raise taxes on inheritance to raise the necessary revenue. This idea made sense in theory, but was incredibly impractical. For starters, the Ashanti economy as a whole had contracted considerably since the days of Kwakojoa. So if an estate tax was going to pay for these programs, the rates would have to be astronomically high. Second, and most importantly, there was no way that Mensabonso was ever going to be able to implement this tax in practice. Remember, Kwakojoa had only been able to implement his estate tax because he was essentially a military dictator. He had complete power over an unquestionably loyal military apparatus. This gave him the ability to either intimidate or replace any civil servants who opposed his agenda, or in some cases, just implement his agenda without consulting them at all. Mensabonso did not enjoy anywhere near the same level of intense military support. Most of the support he received from the military was honestly quite tepid, and better described as loyalty to the institution of the Golden Stool rather than Mensabonso himself. Adu Beaufort, who was now the most powerful Ashanti general after the deaths of many of his contemporaries in the previous two conflicts, had helped Kakri rise to power several years earlier, specifically because he opposed this dictatorial style of rule practiced by Kwakojoa. So there was no way that he would help Mensabonso revive it. Not to mention, he had some strong economic interests that opposed Mensabonso's agenda. As the de facto leader of what was really the only decently funded part of the Ashanti government, the military, Adubofor had acquired a considerable amount of wealth and property. He and his family had acquired massive tracts of land, especially in the largely abandoned countryside around Joabin. Using his immense wealth, he became a prominent creditor, and started manning his newly acquired properties with, of course, the people who he had loaned out money to. So not only would the institution of an estate tax take a great deal of money out of Beaufort's family when he died, it would also be used to shorten his workers' time as indentured laborers. From Beaufort's perspective, this whole idea was a disaster. So, without the support of the most prominent and powerful military general in the country, the closest thing to an army that Mensabonso could use to enforce his new taxes was the palace executioners. Running on only skeleton funds, with few people to enforce them, these policies were doomed to fail. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Funding aside, Ansa was struggling in his own way to get the new educational system onto the right track. The immediate problem was one of faculty. It turned out that there weren't as many professional European academics running around southern Ghana as Ansa had assumed. 
Those who did typically already had a pretty cushy, decent job either in the colonial administration or in an existing missionary school. They definitely weren't willing to leave their post for a position as school teacher in Ashantemon, especially considering how the limited funds at his disposal dramatically limited their promised salary. And, remember, the relationship between Ansa and his old co-workers in the colonial government had soured a lot since 1873, so they didn't jump at the chance to work with him again. The only people that Ansa was able to recruit were not exactly the high-minded academics he was looking for. The best he could do was a shady group of European gold prospectors, who were willing to trade their time in the classroom in exchange for rights over some of the few remaining Ashanti goldfields. Once back in Ashantiman, these guys were, of course, more interested in these mines than the classroom, and dedicated little of their time to teaching. So, Ansa's plan to implement a centralized, professional school system was already turning out to be a dud. So, at this point in Mensa Bonzo's rule, the number of people in peonage is continuing to expand, the school system is struggling, and the economy is continuing to contract. And, if that wasn't bad enough, Mensa Bonzo's administration would soon find itself pushed to the limit by the rise of a new, strange political movement. During periods of hardship, it can be difficult to cope with the crushing reality of social decline. One sadly common response to ongoing social hardship is gravitation towards theories that simplify complex issues and offer easy solutions, especially if those easy solutions are paired with an easily demonized scapegoat. Three years after the war with Draben, things still weren't getting better for most Ashanti. I can see why people in this environment would be susceptible to someone, anyone, who offered solutions to make their lives better. In 1878, Ashantiman was the perfect environment for such a movement to emerge. So, it did. Its name was Domankwama. The word Domankwama refers to one of the three aspects of the Yakan god, the creative energy responsible for forming and giving life to the world. As a result, the name of this political movement is best translated as something like God the Creator or the Creativity of God. As the name implies, the group was intensely pious in its outlook and deeply ingrained within the ideology of the Akan religion, Akom. The group was founded by a mysterious figure known only as Okomfo Kwako. Okomfo is, of course, not a name, but a title meaning high priest. In the case of Okomfo Kwako, this title was not official, but self-appointed. According to later testimony from Domankwama members, Kwako claimed that one day he was minding his own business when suddenly an enormous meteor appeared in the sky. Along with this meteor came the soul of who else but the most famous Okomfo in Ashanti history, the great Okomfo Anoche. The spirit of Anoche possessed the body of Kwaku, and the great Okomfo spoke to him. He informed Kwaku of the true causes of the calamity that faced Ashanti society. All of the problems in Ashantiman were the result of a process of moral degeneration that all started way back after the death of Kwaku Joa. Christians and Muslims had been allowed free reign to undermine the truth of Akom out in the open, Criminals were rarely being executed in the name of the ancestors anymore, and the empire had increasingly shifted away from the communal system of familial land ownership towards a system of oligarchical private landholding by an increasingly small number of families. If this moral degeneration could be reversed, the fortunes of Ashantiman could be reversed as well. So, what was the root cause of this moral degeneration? The answer was Baye, witchcraft. 
Like most religions around the world, Akom believes in a form of dark magic or evil misuse of supernatural powers, roughly correlating to the concept of witchcraft. Now, of course, it's worth noting that Muslim and Christian writers historically wrote off all of Akom religion as witchcraft, so it's important for us to differentiate between the two. The Akan term for witchcraft, Baye, was not considered an acceptable part of Akom religion, and was incredibly taboo. Unlike practitioners of mainstream Akom, Witches were said to curse and spite the Abosom, the spirit sent by God to aid the living. They used evil magic and poison to harm the people around them. Prior to 1878, there is shockingly little indication that belief in witchcraft played a major role in Ashanti life. One of the most common justifications for belief in witchcraft around the world was the supposed role that witches played in the creation and promulgation of disease but this didn't really catch on in Ashanti society. The Akan, for as long as anyone could remember, knew that disease was caused by tiny worms, small animals that were too small for humans to see, not by witches. There is one big exception to this, though, and that is abnormalities in pregnancy. Premature and late births, and most of all, miscarriages, were often blamed on poisoning by witches. Generally, however, these were rare enough to never really provoke any major panics over witchcraft. The closest thing to a witch hunt that the Ashanti had ever undergone before 1878 was a brief episode involving the Ashantihene Ose Bonso back in 1819. Apparently, when a group of nobles were found conspiring with the Ashantihema to overthrow the king, witchcraft and poisoning were among the charges leveled against them in court. Besides this brief mention in a court case nearly 60 years prior, there are actually no cases of people being tried or executed for witchcraft in Ashanti history. Until this point, Akan beliefs in witchcraft seem to primarily exist as a vehicle to provide meaning and comfort to women who, in these cases, desperately needed it. Okonfo Kwako and the Doman Kwama, however, took the belief in witchcraft to an unprecedented extreme. Not only did they believe witchcraft was a common and serious problem in Ashanti society, but that a cabal of witches were engaged in a secret conspiracy to engineer Ashanti social decline. By either ritually cleansing, or, in cases when they refused to be cleansed, killing the witches plaguing Ashantiman, Okonfo Kwako claimed that he could permanently reverse the empire's decline. As Kwako toured around the countryside, preaching his ultra-conservative message of national renewal through witch hunting, he soon began to attract a following. And, perhaps shockingly, the majority of these followers did not come from the masses of peasants or slaves, but from the middle and upper classes. His allies were mostly yeoman farmers, families who owned small farms that they worked for themselves, or in some cases, even large landholding families. After all, these were the people who had the most to lose from Ashanti's social decline, and also the people who held the strongest nostalgia for the good old days of Kwakojoa. At first, from our elevated, enlightened perspective of modern hindsight, it's tempting to dismiss the people who followed Okonfo Kwako as, well, morons. After all, these are people who are signing up for a literal witch hunt. However, I think their actions make a lot more sense if you place yourself in their shoes. From the perspective of an ordinary person, everything that had happened recently in Ashantiman made no sense. Since the death of Kwako Joa, which, keep in mind, was only 11 years ago, everything had gone so inexplicably horrible. Within such a short time frame, the empire had rapidly descended from a state of strong, stable prosperity under Kwakojoa into an abyss of massacres, civil war, and poverty. The empire that they had known before was indestructible. It had bested the British in every previous conflict they'd fought. The idea that this same enemy could not only defeat their armies, but roll up and sack the capital city 
the crown jewel of the Empire, and walk away mostly unscathed was absolutely unbelievable. They were faced with the challenge of rationalizing the absurd notion that their invincible, prestigious homeland was so suddenly reduced to its current state of imminent collapse, and that all of this had happened in less than a decade. So, from the perspective of the time, lacking historical hindsight that we have now about the causes of these crises, is it really that hard to make the leap? Honestly, which is harder to believe? That Ashantiman, the invincible, prosperous hegemon that had ruled Ghana with unrivaled strength for centuries, just suddenly collapsed for no apparent reason in such a short time frame? Or that witches were behind it? It also helped that the message was being spread by an incredibly charismatic mouth. Say what you will about him, Okonfokwako knew how to get the people excited to follow him. At his gatherings, his rowdy, pseudo-religious preaching apparently got people so fired up that they often slipped into literal, trance-like states. It became common for his followers to spontaneously start seizing on the ground, or to declare that, like the Akomfo, they were being possessed by the spirit of a famous Ashanti leader. During Akomfo Kwako's speeches, his followers would blurt out that they were being possessed by the souls of Ose Bonso, Konado Yadom, Aman Kwasha, and even Ose Tutu himself. Within a few months, the charismatic preacher had attracted a small following of a few thousand people, both men and women, largely from middle-class families. This early success cascaded into an even faster-growing movement, as these followers took to the streets to spread Okonfokwaku's message of Ashanti revival through tradition. At first, and in a shocking twist, Metsubonso tepidly supported the Domonkwama movement. This doesn't seem to make much sense at first. Mensabonso was a king who was instituting tons of relatively progressive reforms and consulting with an unapologetically liberal Ansa. So what was he doing associating himself with such an ultra-conservative religious movement that hated anything that resembled social reform? Well, it seems that Mensabonso saw the Domankwama as more useful than threatening. Yes, all their talk of witchcraft can be kinda unhinged sometimes, but the king and Domankwama shared a goal the restoration of the Ashanti state. More than that, both the Akonfo and Mensa Bonso shared a vocal admiration for the old Ashantihene Kwakojoa. Both of them saw themselves as the avatar that would continue Kwakojoa's legacy, and that under their guidance, the Ashanti state would return to the prosperity that it had experienced under Kwakojoa. Sure, the Doman Kwama might be a little confused, but Mensa Bonso thought he could definitely use their intense energy to get some of his reforms passed. This would prove to be a huge mistake on Mensa Bonso's part. You see, while he and the Doman Kwama agreed vaguely on the idea of returning to the status quo of Kwakojoa, that meant very different things from each of their perspectives. You see, Mensa Bonso is, I guess what we can call an authoritarian progressive. He believed that the Ashanti Empire needed to reform if it was to survive, and that this could only happen if people could just shut up and listen to him. If people would just stop complaining, pay their taxes, and let the government do its job, that would be perfect. That was what Mensa Bonso admired about Kwakojoa, that he was a no-nonsense kind of reformer. He made policy changes that were needed, and if you didn't like it, tough luck. Akonfo Kwako, on the other hand, didn't really know or care about that. Things like taxation and legal policy weren't really in his wheelhouse. All he knew was that back in Kwakojoa's day, if you broke the law, you got killed. He also knew that back then, things were good. Now just look around. Ever since the Ashanti government had gotten all soft, witches and foreigners had been allowed to walk all over them. The Akomfo didn't care about taxation or the authority of the Ashantihene relative to the military or Ashanti Manshiamu. He cared about sending Ashanti social institutions back to the 1860s. 
For his part, Owosu Ansa saw the incompatibility of Mensabonso and Okonfo Kwako's ideologies from the very beginning. He repeatedly warned the king about the Domankwama, who he labeled as imposters. He ranted about the dangerousness of their agenda, how these crazy witch hunters were a major threat to royal power. But the Ashantahene ignored his advisor's call for caution. Even if he agreed with Ansa, the reality was that this movement was growing, and he would be foolish not to ride its momentum. If he didn't win the Domankwama over, what would happen if one of his rivals, like Owosu Koko or his sister, did? So, the king provided official royal endorsement to the movement in order to win over their favor. However, the relationship between the Domankwama movement and Mensa Bonso was doomed to fail as soon as it began. Everything came apart the moment that Kwako ordered the beginning of his witch hunt. While his followers fanned out into the countryside looking for suspected witches, Okonfu Kwako remained in his hometown of Adomokasi, a mid-sized city just north of Komasi. There, he set up his own court of law, in which he would personally lay out unimpeachable judgments of the accused witches. This was a major trespass. Since the origin of the Ashanti state, the Ashantehene's role of highest judge in the land had always been respected, even during moments of instability. This decision to create a court independent of the Ashantehene's authority was beyond the scope of acceptable behavior. Not to mention, like everything else in the Ashanti Empire at this time, finances were also an issue. One of the few reliable streams of revenue that the Ashanti government had remaining at its disposal was legal fines. In fact, you could argue that Mensabonso's decision to reduce the prevalence of execution as punishment was not some high-minded liberal desire to move to a more enlightened system, but rather to increase the number of crimes that were punished with fines. By setting up a rival court, the Domankwama was not only threatening the Ashantahene's power, but also threatening this revenue stream. When Mensabonso discovered the existence of this rival court, he immediately and aggressively withdrew any support that he had for the Domankwama. He announced that anyone who was caught working for this rival court, and anyone who was caught obeying its demands, would be in violation of Ashanti law. The brewing conflict between the royal government and the Domankwama came to a head in late 1879. At this time, all of those Domankwama supporters who had dispersed into the countryside returned to Adomokasi with hundreds of accused witches. These witches were given a simple ultimatum, either pay a fine and undergo ritual cleansing, or be executed on the spot. Of course, the vast majority of the accused chose the former. Remember, though, that recognizing the Domankwama court, even by paying a fine to avoid a violent death, was considered a criminal act by Mensa Bonso. So, when the accused witches emerged from Adomokasi, likely just relieved that they had managed to escape the situation alive, they found themselves greeted by Ashanti police, who were ready to take them to prison unless they paid an even steeper fine. Of course, the Domankwama supporters who were arresting and detaining the accused witches were also locked up when caught. With these arrests, Okonfukwako realized that Mensa Bonso was trying to undermine his reactionary revolution. Within a few days, he had become completely certain that Mensa Bonso himself must have been part of the conspiracy of witches, or at the very least, an unknowing stooge for their schemes. He would not take this provocation lying down. He announced his intention to counter the king's arrests a coup. Ashanti civic culture had long personified the Ashantahene as a tree, a great man who shaded his people from the evils of the world through the maintenance of law and order. In a passionate speech to his followers, Kwako declared that the great tree that once shaded us has fallen down, referring to Mensabonso's failure as a king. He and a few hundred armed followers marched on Komasi. Their plan besiege the palace, kill Mensabonso, and instool Kwako Joe II as the new Ashantahene. 
He, in his gratefulness, would clearly pardon them all of their crimes and elevate Aconfocuaco as the new official state religious authority. In the early days of the next year, they put their plan into motion. In 1880, the Ashanti royal palace was still under the process of being rebuilt. The current building represented a small fraction of its original size or scope, with really only a few bedrooms and the royal treasury having been reconstructed. As the Domanquama armies descended onto the palace, they overwhelmed the unsuspecting guards. Mensabonso emerged from his chambers and delivered a speech in which he tried to reason with the mob. However, any remaining iota of sympathy that Mensabonso had left for the movement exited his body when one of the Domanquama supporters raised their rifle and fired it at the Ashantihene narrowly missing his head. Recognizing that the time for negotiations was over, Mensabonso fled the palace, barely evading the pursuing mob. Outside of the palace, he managed to regroup with the remaining palace guards. With the king safe, the palace guards rallied. With their better training and better equipment, Mensabonso's guards slaughtered the unorganized attackers to a man. From here, the group shattered. Its leader, Aconfocuaco, never appears in any records again, indicating that he was either killed in the battle at the royal palace, or that he quietly slipped away into a life of obscurity. The remainder of the Domanquama were either captured, executed, or forced into hiding. Despite its failure, the Domanquama's attempt on Mensabonso's life would stick with him for the rest of his days. The attack seemingly changed the man, instilling in him a great paranoia. The flawed but pragmatic man we've come to know in the last two episodes would never return. From now on, he would see enemies around every corner and inflict a great terror on the entire Ashanti nation. Join us next episode when the increasingly paranoid Mensabonso seals his own demise with brutal violence, and the Ashanti spiral into a second, even deadlier, civil war. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwokocha, Joe Maxwell, and Nkechi Nwabudike, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.